Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flying Sage podcast. This is your host, Michael Oliver. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Mehran Sayed Imami. Mehran is a BC registered clinical counselor and Canadian certified counselor. He is a certified practitioner of compassionate inquiry and is a graduate of the Integral Counseling Psychology and Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research Programs at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Moran is a close friend of mine whom I really look up to. We first met when volunteering with MAPS Canada about four years ago, and during that time, Moran has been on an incredible and powerful journey. I am glad our paths have continued to cross as Moran is a very wise soul with some wonderful ideas and insights to share. I'm always in a kind of awe when he shares his story, and I am grateful he was open to sharing it here today with you all. Today, we take the time to discuss what it means to be a psychedelic guide, how psychedelics map onto Iranian culture, what somatic practice looks like, and a lot of other interesting topics related to psychedelic therapy. This is one of my favorite conversations yet, and so without further ado, here is my conversation with Mehran. All right, beautiful. Welcome, Mehran. Thank you so much for joining me on the Flying Sage podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Thank you for your kind invitation. I am excited for your journey and this podcast as well. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to chat with you too. Ron is a close friend of mine. And so I'm hoping today will be both a casual and powerful conversation all in one. We can kind of just riff like we normally do as friends, but um, yeah, hoping to point some of that conversation in certain directions. So I have some questions that I want to ask you but I think we'll also find that the conversation might just kind of find its own way. I thought maybe first I would like to just ask you if you might be able to share a bit more about yourself. So I've shared kind of your background and some of what got you into the space, but the question that I had for you first here was what has shaped you become the man that you are today? And I'm curious, yeah, if you could share with the audience what your story is. Yeah, my uh, chapter two so to speak, began about five years ago um, with the death of my father. He was an academic, uh, sociologist, a professor, an environmentalist, and he was arbitrarily, unexpectedly, unjustifiably, and uh, quite traumatically arrested and ultimately died in jail, in an Iranian jail, uh, for no reason, for absolutely no good reason. I can get into the details of that a little bit more, but essentially they were trying to save an endangered species, the Asiatic cheetah, um, of which there's only less than 20 left in the world. So saving an animal by setting up camera traps across different points in Iran, to try to monitor and track their activities like any other environmental group or NGO would do. And they accused them of setting up these traps to monitor missile activities. And so he was accused of being a spy for the CIA and MI6 and ultimately killed in jail. The news that they delivered to me was that he committed suicide, which I never really believed, but there was like a 0.01% chance that that might have happened. And that really 
was a very difficult um, place to be in, knowing that in my mind, in my rational mind, I thought that, well, he kind of took the easy way out. He decided to just end his life, to leave us, that he didn't love me, and that he kind of gave up on his family. That was the story that I had made up. And it wasn't until an ayahuasca experience in Brazil about two years ago where I got to relive um, parts of those two weeks that he was in jail in the solitary confinement, a person who loved the outdoors, who had lived such a beautiful life all of a sudden to be in such a confined, limited space. And I wanted to know how that felt for him because it was as if I had to reclaim his pain, his suffering. I don't know why. It was almost like, you know, why did I want to live his last moments? But anyways, the journey, it brought me to the truth and the realization that he was... In Iran, what happens is that when they arrest you, they detain you, they want to force a confession out of you to admit something you haven't done, to confess against yourself or others for something you or they have not done. And so what became evidently, vividly clear was that not only did he not speak against himself, but no one else that he was willing to speak his truth until his last breath and therefore also willing to die for it and ultimately probably tortured to death. And so in that version of the story from my ayahuasca experience, I got to see him as a hero, not as someone who gave up. And so for me, following his footsteps, this beautiful man who I loved, I admired, who was everything, was our pillar, our rock, um, became an inspiration for me to also live in truth and integrity and to stand up for what's right and to speak my voice no matter what and to always be truthful despite consequence, despite what, how others might perceive it or receive it or take it or take it personal or feel bad about it, whatever it might be, I'm still going to speak my truth and to follow his footsteps um, in this work now as a psychedelic uh, therapist, uh, just starting in this realm, in this work. So it's a heavy story, man. I mean, I don't know how other to, how, what other way to put it. It's been a rough ride for the past five years, a lot of anger, rage that still exists. You know, there are protests right now happening in Iran for the death of Masa Amini. You might have heard a 22-year-old who was just um, arbitrarily again um, taken and beaten to death by what we have what what's called the mor morality police which is ridiculous people who monitor women for their hijab for their headscarves and you know if they're not obeying you know the islamic kind of customs and so there are a lot of protests happening and she's not the only one about 50 people have so far died in the protests and that's happening actively as we speak. And so I have like one foot in Iran, one foot here, you know, wanting to feeling a bit hopeless, a bit powerless, wanting to help. So there's just so much going on. I don't even know where to go from here, but I just wanted to share where I'm at. Yeah. At well, moment. thank you so much for sharing your story, Imran.
I've heard your story multiple times now and every time it gives me shivers and yeah, it's an incredibly powerful story and I commend you for being able to tell it with such coherence now, you know, like it really shows just how much of a journey it has been for you and the healing that you must have gone through to be able to tell your story uh, in the way that you do. Uh, I'm sure it's gotten easier over time. But at the same time, I'm sure that something like that is going to always impact you for the rest of your life. And, you know, I personally can't, I can't imagine or understand like the totality of what that experience would have been like when you first received that call and that just that journey that you were immediately sent on. I mean, your life changed drastically after that call, right? And I'm sure it hasn't been the same since, but from knowing you as a friend, I really commend you for how strong you have showed up like every time that I've interacted with you and, and how your story has also served as like a vehicle for healing for so many other people too. I'm starting to witness that as well. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm sure that um, people out there who, well, I'm sure other people out there will be able to relate to it in so many different ways because there's so much there uh, with your story. You know, there's so many different themes that are relatable, I think, to a lot of people, but then at the same time, there's an aspect of it that is just so, so unique. And I, I don't think people will be able to see this because this is just going to be an audio only, only podcast, but I love the artwork that you have behind your, uh, your, yourself there with the cheetah. And yeah, it's really symbolic, powerful. I'm, I'm going to, maybe I can include a photo of that in the show notes or something like that. But yeah, thank you, Maron. Thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm curious, like how, how has that experienced shaped you now like as you go about your day-to-day life you've mentioned a couple things like it's inspired you to be a better man or to be the best man that you can be and I'm curious how has it shaped your lifestyle like you know I shared with people that you're you know you're among many things a, a psychedelic practitioner has has that experienced shaped you to go down that path and you know as a counselor as well like is that something that came about as from from this experience that you've had or how has that experience of lo- losing your father shaped who you are today yeah i was kind of like a baby learning how to walk again really so this happened when i was 33 or 34 and i, I had to leave the country where I had planned on staying. So all of a sudden, um, having no choice but to come to Canada, where I am also a citizen and had a passport. Fortunately, many people in Iran may not have had that privilege or or luxury, but I did. Um, Given how big of a story this became, we had no choice but to leave. And so there's a lot more details, again, that I can go into just one of them at the airport when me and my brother and my mother and our three dogs were wanting to travel, they held my mom back and they didn't allow her to board the plane. Um, this is, again, their scare tactics and what these authoritarian regimes hope to do is to silent you, to keep you quiet, to shut you up, to not share your story um, and kind of wither away in, in silence uh, in depression and decay. And so they held my mom for a year and a half, you know, not in prison, but at home. And she was monitored and um, 
perpetually questioned and, and bothered from time to time. And here we are naive thinking that the government of Canada or the world will kind of speak up on our behalf, would protest on our behalf. Some did, um, but we thought that we can resolve this issue within a matter of weeks, but that didn't happen. So I was in a state of suspended grief for at least a year and a half where I couldn't really emote, express, feel until my mom was back home safe with us. My brother was dealing with a lot of addiction at the same time. He's two years older, but I had to kind of be the big brother in some way for him. And you can already tell that all of my energy is being kind of uh, moved outward and not really attending to myself, my own self-care, my own well-being. Fortunately, though, a few good things also did happen. One of them being that Gabor Mate, as I'm sure many of your listeners would know, he heard about our story. He invited us into his home. He was so kind, um, such a good friend. Introduced us to his family, his beautiful family. And this is someone I deeply admired, respect, knew. My brother had met him in an ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica um, just a month prior to all of this happening. And so he kind of followed my brother and then heard about our, our news. Uh, and so he invited us to his home and then he introduced me to Janice Phelps, who's a person who's leading the psychedelic therapy program at CIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies, who I think are the first school to be uh, formally offering training for psychedelic therapy. Um, and we'll get into that, not that training for psychedelic therapy needs to be above ground or, or done only in such context. You know, this is ind indigenous millennia old, um, knowledge, wisdom practice. But at the time I thought that perhaps that would be a good option for me, given that I wanted to take the slightly safer route, I guess the above ground route to kind of keep my mom and my family safe to not not take any risks this is about four or five years ago it wasn't as mainstream as it is today it was starting to become mainstream and um so janice phelps she invited me to join a weekend of classes in san francisco i flew out there and loved it and just knew that this was something that felt right felt true felt aligned and to be honest selfishly i also wanted to learn about how to heal myself. At that time, I felt like I'm fucked, you know, and that I need to find a modality and approach, you know, not only to seek support, but like learn about it to like be trained in it, you know, and then kind of apply it to myself experimentally, experientially. And so I didn't qualify for the psychedelic therapy training program at the time. So I decided to do a whole master's program, <laughs> a year of internship, um, you know, or practicum, a thousand hours of client facing hours until I can qualify for that program three, four years later, which is last year, essentially, and, and, and ultimately graduating the end of last year from that program. So I kind of set out for this goal, the only thing that made sense at the time and achieved it. Now that it's finished, I'm kind of, okay, what the fuck is the next step? You know, where do I go from here? And I also did some training with Gabor Mate and Compassion and Inquiry, which was super helpful. I really feel that this rectangle, I guess, or square of 
the psychedelic therapy training I did, Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry, somatic experiencing that I'm also learning a somatic body-centered approach um, developed by Peter Levine, another trauma-informed specialist, author, and IFS, which is Internal Family Systems, or um, which was developed by Dick Schwartz, mm -hmm. um, parts language, you know, kind of seeing us all as an amalgamation of these different parts, right? And so I thought the combination of these modalities, um, I've also done some training in holotropic breath work as well, I guess, to add that in. But um, the combination of these modalities is kind of now slowly shaping who I am or the kind of approach that I want to offer. But to be honest, Michael, like we don't need a certificate or a training. Some people may not agree with this necessarily to do this kind of work. I think it already lives inside of us. I think our life experiences shape us more than anything. You know, what we've been through, the suffering that we've endured, the trauma that we've endured, the ability to empathize, to sit with someone in their pain, perhaps has been the greatest skill and gift that I've learned. And that normally, not always, I wish it didn't have to happen this way, but happens when we've gone through similar suffering ourselves, be it pain, loss, grief, death, trauma which we all have to a degree because Gabor Mate just released a book, The Myth of Normal, which speaks about collective trauma, how we're living in a sick society. It's a very strong statement to make, I know, but how we're all stressed to, you know, out of our heads. And essentially we are just living in a soup of trauma without even um, recognizing it. Kind of like the David Foster Wallace um, this is water speech that he gave where two swish are swimming in the water and they have no idea that they're swimming within this um, element. And so the universe tends to wake us up when we're not listening and how it speaks is usually through our bodies, through illness, through our immune systems, through getting sick, getting burned out, getting overwhelmed, feeling over anxious, depressed, all these different ways, essentially signaling, triggering something inside of us that we're not necessarily paying attention to. And this is why I'm so drawn to the more somatic modalities, because it really begins with allowing our bodies to speak. I've gone through like the hyper analysis left brain over analysis paralysis routes and believe me it doesn't get me anywhere you know with my dad's death i could try to spin it every possible which way and try to think of a million different scenarios of how i could have prevented his death or why did this happen but that will drive me insane and that can happen in a psychedelic experience by the way if you resist and you hold on to like that egoic left brain rational analytic logical brain of ours like we're going to have a bad trip. <laughs> it's pretty much guaranteed. So I had no choice but to surrender into my right brain or into my body and the sensations and somatic experience of what I'm experiencing, which in my case is a lot of anger and rage, justifiably and rightfully so, that I deserve to feel after what happened to him. But I've always had this very zen, calm exterior <laughs> because from a young age, I learned to suppress anger and rage. Why? Because my parents would fight when I was a kid or my dad would be quick to get angry or my older brother would be quick to get angry. So what do you know? Here's this kid 
who suppressed anger all his life had something huge which deserves a lot of anger happen now and imagine it's like fucking having you know one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at the same time where you're both suppressing but also needing this soul this body everything to express and yet you're not allowing it to express so for me the very first basic lesson is to just fucking feel into your anger you know and hopefully have it be healthy anger which is saying no which is having boundaries which is standing up for what's right which is speaking up which is protesting activism you know not just punching pillows like we hear by other therapists but like really speaking up truly and expressing and feeling into that pain like every psychedelic experience we we hear lean into it right like surrender mm -hmm. into it go into it allow it witness it welcome it be curious observe it notice it and 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 that those are the same kind of words that i also repeat to clients you know you know to help support them in going into it where you want to facilitate a safe enough supported enough um context environment place for them to feel that they can go into these emotions that they've suppressed for so long due to yeah. their traumas their context their background their culture their i can go on and on michael but i'll stop there <laughs> i appreciate you going on and on it's i could just sit here and listen to you talk all day I really love the way that you describe things. And yeah, thank you. There's so much to to go into there. I feel like we could dive into so many different topics. You brought up CIIS, you brought up internal family systems, you brought up the need for training um, or or not the need for training, um, depending how you look at it. In psychedelic therapy, you talked about the importance of somatic-based approaches uh, to the work that you do and how traumas, trauma informs the work that you do. You talked about Gabor Mate's work, Compassionate Inquiry, I'll try and list uh, all these resources in the show notes for people to check out because uh, there, there's some really great resources here. And I'm, I definitely want to revisit what you said there about training because you're right. Um, there definitely are people out there who would probably disagree. And I think it's really an important point. I think what you share there is really powerful, especially you. I think you sharing that is really powerful as someone that has actually gone through some of the most extensive training available in the world today for this type of work. Um, I'd say you're extremely qualified and the, you know, to hear you share that, I think for a lot of people, it, it would be very meaningful. And I think it, it is impactful to hear that coming from you. So I'd love to dive into that maybe um, shortly, but just while you're on the topic of creating safe containers and creating spaces to allow people to surrender and feel, I'm curious if you might be able to share a bit more about what somatic approaches are, because that's, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, and even just for me, I'd love to hear like what you're what that word means to you and like how how can you use um, a somatic approach to help people feel safe in their body and to maybe to allow people to um, have a better experience with psychedelics i think i will quote ramdas in his east forest song i think sitting around the fire um where he says um i think i'm paraphrasing here but quiet the minds open your heart quiet your minds open your heart how do we quiet our minds? We meditate. How do we open our heart? We love what we can love, anything, anything, any place, any being, any animal, any person, anything that helps invoke in us a sense of love and then expanding on that love from there. So these are tied into related to somatic because we're so used to like on Zoom staying in our heads, right? Including myself, mm -hmm. I will openly admit to it that it is a challenge for me 
you know, some people just don't like meditating. They don't like checking in. They don't like listening to their bodies, either because they don't like what they're hearing or they're not feeling safe enough or they're feeling already tired and exhausted from the rat race of life, you know? So it really isn't that complicated, Michael. You know, when people say somatic, all that it means is your bodily sensory experience, meaning how are you breathing right now? Do you notice any tension, restriction, constriction, expansion, closing, opening, warmth, anything in your body right now? And just invite your attention, invite your awareness, invite your curiosity to that point. Just right now, if the listeners want to try that, you know, just check in. How are you breathing? Are you breathing from your chest or from your belly? Are you noticing any tension in your neck, in your shoulders, in your lower back, in your knees? Do you feel like you're, what is it when you have that kind of nervous shaking of your like restless leg syndrome? You know, like it's a bit of, I don't like the word syndrome, but you know, when you're like kind of shaking your leg when you're anxious, you know, those little things, right? How we're positioning our hands, our posture, our tone, you know, all of these nonverbal gestures that we're all constantly expressing and this is what we therapists kind of somatic therapists pick up on without the need for words if someone has been severely traumatized you don't need a word to speak it's already evident from how you show up in your body both in how you feel towards your body but also how others may see or perceive your body um so that's all that that somatic means really does that kind of answer it yeah that really does answer the question that's i think a great definition and really speaks to the importance of understanding trauma and how that lives inside the body and i know you were mentioning about the work of gabor mate and i know that's one of his big focuses i'm curious to hear what your experience was like in the compassionate inquiry program and how maybe the lens that they offered there differed or complemented the work that you did with ciis I'm slightly biased towards Gabor because I just love him as a human so much, you know, so I can't help but not recommend all of his stuff. But for anyone listening, I would recommend checking out his books in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, When the Body Says No, The Myth of Normal that just came out, his YouTube videos, and then one of his workshops, you know, which is a shorter version of the longer term one year, 240 hour professional online training that I went through, which is called Compassionate Inquiry. So I would recommend folks, you know, just check out his stuff online, which is all available for free. And then if it makes sense for any social workers, helpers, guides, sitters, practitioners out there to then join one of his longer term programs, which is quite experiential in nature, um, meaning that you get to practice dyads and triads and be with others um, in uh, the process and the approach, which he also doesn't claim to be his own. You know, he's been inspired by A.H. Almas, by Peter Levine, by Bessel van der Kolk, by um, several, I mean, many of these modalities and trainings are pretty much saying the same thing, you know, but just in different ways. And so f- check into what feels intuitively right to you, you know, what um, feels like, okay, this is making sense. You know, is it just passing through me like Chinese food or does it like <laughs> resonate and stay with me? And so um, Gabor, I mean, what I love about him is that he is so openly, unapologetically 
fiercely truthful. Like right. when I started by saying that I live in truth, like he truly exemplifies and represents that. That in his 70s, he openly speaks about, you know, his own struggles. We've all heard, you know, his story many times and his relationship with his kids, with his family, him, his own addictions, his own struggles with ADHD, his own, you know, need to compete, compare how he's perceived by the world, you know? Like, I wonder sometimes, like, does Gabor Mata check his Amazon, like, you know, ranking, like how many books he sold? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. It's coming from a bit of a judgmental energy, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, these people totally. are humans and they're imperfect, just like us. We all are. And so I think kind of going into what to me makes a good psychedelic practitioner, which I, I know that you like to focus on a lot as well. There are a few things. One, let's not take ourselves so seriously. Let's not pretend to be the shit, you know? Let's have a sense of humor. Let's bring lightness. You know, let's bring humility. Let's constantly remind ourselves that we have no fucking clue, that we don't know. The second in my life I thought that I knew, I've been taught otherwise very quickly <laughs> by the universe. You know, for me, it had to come, unfortunately. I mean, it seems like a rather harsh lesson, but perhaps with the death of my father, yeah. that was a pretty big wake up call for me. Because until that time, I still listened to Ramdas, who I consider one of my biggest teachers. I never liked the word guru, by the way, but I consider him a teacher, a guide, a friend. You know, he can be whoever you want to project onto him, a brother, father, friend, lover, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so until my father's death, I mimicked and emulated and spoke and orated Ramdas or Krishnamurti or Alan Watts or all these philosophers and Stoics and teachers. But it was after my father's death that I had to learn how to be like Ramdas and actually practice, integrate, live these lessons, not just, you know, pretend like I know what I'm talking about or you know, show up still in my ego, thinking like I have my shit together, pretending to speak about we're all one, namaste, whatever, when I truly didn't resonate or believe it deep down in my soul. Not to say that I'm there now, you know, not at all, but I'm on the way there. I'm on the path there to truly live and be and speak all on kind of the same level. Have you ever seen people, and this is one of my kind of pet peeves, where they say something but act differently. They mm -hmm. speak something yet behave otherwise. They, you know, share something, but then let's just be open about our whatever it is, like my anger, my rage, my sexuality, my the fact that, you know, Ramdas would joke that a horny celibate is no closer to God than someone who admits his own lust or their own lust. You know, that, and this is what I've seen, again, coming from a slightly judgmental energy, but certain psychedelic practitioners that mistake themselves for the medicine and the client and their bodies and their own wisdom, what Stan Groff would call our own inner healing intelligence. You know, this is a word that we can use in many different ways, our body, our intuition, our soul, our spirit, 
our wisdom, our innate wisdom, our innate knowing, our capital S self, you know, there are many names for it. But that is all that is happening in these um, sessions. I need to learn how to do enough work and kind of dissolve and rid myself enough of my own shit to know how to get out of the way to allow a person's healing to happen. That's all I'm doing, which is, you know, obviously safety, consent, agreements, you know, the practical steps that we all know that should almost be given by now are there. But otherwise, once the journey begins, I'm getting out of the way and trusting in that person's capacity to heal. How did I learn that lesson? Because I have a brother who's been struggling with addiction for 20 years. And every single time that I've tried to intervene, interject, fix, resolve, rescue, heal, change, I've got a big slap by the universe. You can't change anyone. You need to accept them for exactly where they are, the way they are, as imperfect, infallible as they are, and as much as they make you uncomfortable coming from your own place of fear, wanting to then jump in to try to help someone. Who, who are we to be someone's savior or rescuer? The audacity for us to think that we're here to change anyone or heal anyone. We're not here to do anything. Let's not forget that. You know, This is where money may also come in too. Like I'm charging money because I'm offering a profound, powerful service to you. Okay, I mean, we all need money to pay rent, to eat food and to get by, I get that. But let's not pretend like, you know, we're offering some crazy service here that only we know about. You know, it's kind of like how the church, I'm getting into some pretty controversial territory here, but perfect. the church had to be like an intermediary between God and you. You know, we're no intermediaries. That person, including me, is God. However, we want to define God, spirit, soul, etc. So we need to get out of the way so they can have that direct connection to God, which is themselves. <laughs> Powerful. Yeah, I love this sort of topic, Umaran. So thank you for charting into this territory. I think there's lots of really interesting things here. So you brought up the inner healing intelligence and the importance of getting out of people's way and getting out of your own way when it comes to healing and really trusting that healing comes from within. And so this kind of gets at and starts to trail towards the topic of training as well because what i've got floating around my mind right now is like you've got this concept of inner healing intelligence and you know you mentioned briefly about the role of the guide but perhaps you could speak a little bit more to that shortly here because obviously if, if someone was just to hear okay well if it's all about the inner healing intelligence then why doesn't someone just go you know take mushrooms by themselves like what's the importance of a guide i think it might be important to to stress that because of course there are there are benefits and there are um, many important things that come with having a guide but then kind of the follow-up question to that would then be, okay, well then when it comes to being a guide, if, if this is really what we're doing, we're facilitating experiences for people to heal from within, we're, we're creating experiences to open people up, then what, what does training offer? Like, yeah, like what sort of trainings are going to be really beneficial in, in this way? And like you spoke earlier about the fact that for you, and this may be controversial, you know, training can be helpful, but at the same time, you, you feel that not necessarily everyone needs a certificate to do this kind of work. And there's probably other qualities that a guide could have that could be beneficial to doing this sort of work. So anyway, these are the types of things that are floating in my head after you shared all that. And I'm curious, maybe if you could start just sharing like, like what would be the importance 
of having a guide? Like, why would someone look for a guide? How do we go about this one? Um, I think when we're alone, when we're on our own, we sometimes don't feel safe enough to go there. I'm kind of speaking about my own experiences with mushrooms, other substances that one time I smoked DMT and immediately went into a panic when I was alone. Um, and I kind of stepped out of my room. This was in China of all places. I have no idea how I found DMT in China. <laughs> um, but um, I want to really be respectful of solo psychonauts, you know, because I have no doubt that many people have had profound, beautiful healing journeys solo but i'm sure that there's a lot of room for error as well so i'm just wondering how i could answer this question respecting everyone um, <laughs> hard thing to do <laughs> for me i guess i'll speak for myself um the benefit of having a guide was that certain trauma attachment wounds or patterns happen relationally and therefore need to be repaired and healed relationally. So that guide, in a good way, can sometimes become our father, brother, mother, caretaker, um, who we didn't have, perhaps, when we were growing up. As early as when we were in the womb, the early childhood years, if we want to for a moment um, assume that what Gabor Mate has been saying all along is right, which is that all of our traumas, all of our present day manifest dis-ease, dilemma, illness originates in childhood trauma, he believes from a very young age. If we assume that to be true, th those relational dynamics and patterns can re be relived in a psychedelic experience. And when we're alone, we may not have the opportunity to get the love, nourishment, touch, which is super important, by the way, in this work. But obviously, again, without saying non-sexual, consenting, agreed upon uh, touch is very important in this work. Where, again, getting what they didn't get a chance to receive when they were super young. And so there's a very important relational piece in having a guide. Yeah. There's a very important safety piece, you know, that I, again, if I don't feel safe in my body, if I don't, if I feel dysregulated, then there's a chance that the psychedelics can amplify my dysregulation. But another person, what we do, for example, when someone gets overwhelmed, I don't know if I learned this in training or just by experience, I look into someone's eyes, I breathe, and this allows them to breathe with me. I use touch in a very gentle, respectful way. I, I help co-regulate with them to regulate our nervous systems together. Uh, and this really helps ground them in their bodies to feel safe enough to kind of get past whatever obstacle barrier, which they may not have been able to alone. For some people, the group psychedelic experiences work very well, not for me personally, but for some people, it works really well because there's something almost trans-rational, I don't know how to explain it, 
there's like such an amazing configuration of people who come together to heal because someone might be triggering someone in the room, but that is all part of the soup and part of the healing process of those two people. Right. And so there's something, again, relational, dynamic, and very alive that happens in the group process. Some of you listening, you might have experienced, like, why is it that the group breathwork experience, non-psychedelic approaches and modalities, by the way, which there are many of, we can get into that, you know, um, we don't need psychedelics to get to these places. There are many beautiful, amazing um, approaches, uh, apart from psychedelics as well. But for breathwork, you might have experienced that in group journeys, you go deeper, right? The one that we did with you and Navin, the sounds, cannabis, correct me of the wording, um, yeah, journey, but journey. the journey that we did together was powerful when we were in a group. Yeah. With just like one or two um, inhales. Uh, inhales of cannabis. Like yeah. I was having a full on trip, a full on experience, you know, just thanks to the power of the group music. Again, another element that is super important we can get into. So, yeah, that's, I guess, what I can share around the alone versus being with others piece. But also, just to kind of briefly go through the logistics of how an individual one-on-one -on -one journey for me and my client would look like, you'd be lying down on the couch, a mindfold or blindfold on, music playing in the background, the use of touch, optional, invitational, uh, with consent, uh, there we're really inviting, uh, really going within an introspective journey and to remain silent as much as possible, to be honest. You know, any expression is welcome, of course. You know, any scream, any cry, any, uh, any expression, both somatic and otherwise. Uh, but we really invite people to go deep within themselves because when we're doing it alone, especially in a familiar place like our homes, we may reiterate or repeat certain comfort patterns, which is to go to the fridge, to grab something, to get up, to go, you know, even to go to the bathroom or, or get up and walk around, move around the second it gets a bit uncomfortable. But having a guide will remind you, you know what, Michael, um, is it okay if I invite you to go back in? You know, don't worry, you know, like the door's not knocking, you know, no one's here. <laughs> the phone's not ringing, you know? Are you sure you need to pee right now? You know, like any of these impulses can be a reinforcement of a flight or fight response, for example, you know, that mobilized energy of needing to move. So you remind people, do you really need to move right now? Like I remember in an ayahuasca retreat, the same one in Brazil two years ago, I kept wanting to do something. I couldn't just like lay still. I was like, am I warm? Am I cold? Do I need another blanket? Like my head is a bit like, you know, feeling off, like, um, this music, I don't like this music, you know, oh, another person is purging, maybe I should purge right now. And like going off on all these tangents, instead of just staying with my experience. This is what tends to happen sometimes with a psychedelic experience, we want to like step out. So having a guide allows us to step back in. But only if we feel trusting enough, safe enough, having enough of a rapport with them to do so. And this is why I wouldn't recommend anyone just jumping into this work quickly. Like I personally do up to about 20 hours of work for one client. There can definitely be even more than that, but at least 20 hours of work, meaning from intake, screening, preparation, the journey itself, integration, you know, it can be a three to six month journey for someone. So that's just personally how I would do it rather than just, you know, coming in for a weekend. Um, so it really does begin 
from before, like at least days or weeks before the journey until days and weeks after the journey. This is a container that we're creating together. Beautiful. Yeah, you spoke to some really important things there. I loved how you mentioned about a guide being able to help people step into their experience when, yeah, sometimes all they want to do is step out and move away from. But you spoke to that earlier too, like the tendency and capacity for people to move through what they're seeing, to open the door, to go up the stairs, whatever it is that's appearing before them to encourage people to to move in that direction. So encouragement's a huge one. And then, yeah, working with preparatory sessions and giving people the trust, I guess that's what it's come down to, right? Like you want to create that trust and container. And maybe sometimes people don't have trust in themselves to be able to work with this, these compounds, especially since they're, you know, in a lot of places still illegal. There's lots of stigma around them. They're kind of scary for someone who maybe hasn't um, encountered them before. They're very powerful. So yeah, those are all really great, great reasons why you would want to work with a guide. And so I appreciate you sharing those and also acknowledging too, it's like, it's that and you know, there's some people that are comfortable and um, maybe are better better suited to work with these things by themselves, or at least maybe after they've initially worked with a guide, perhaps then what we ultimately want is people to be liberated and empowered to, to use their own medicine, right? Um, so yeah, very interesting. Thanks, Maron. I'm yes, gonna... I like that word liberation and having choice, yeah. agency, autonomy, like I'm all for that, you know, even from the moment deciding what substance, what medicine, who to do it with, where to do it, you know, um, how do I create the most comfort safety for myself and and really emphasizing that agency and choice, not to do it as a peer pressure kind of thing, as a way to compare, as a way to compete, as a way to, oh my God, everyone is doing this. I need to try this. You know, there's a, you've probably all heard of this by now, which is to truly have a calling to work with these medicines and which medicine and in what setting, what capacity with who, with, with what guide, you know, for me, the best recommendation I would have for folks is to trust your friends and family and loved ones who've also had a journey and experience and can really introduce and refer someone through word of mouth. Um, that is for me, the best kind of referral. Be wary of anyone who imposes or says you need to do this or that it will change your life. 99% chance of a miracle. This was literally advertised like on an ayahuasca retreat website, you know, 99% <laughs> chance of finding your miracle, you know, like fuck that. So um, it really needs to feel inside out, like really from a calling, from an intuition, from a deeper knowing that this is time. You know, I might even add a slightly controversial statement that I don't recommend it to people who are super young, you know, while we're still developing our brains, you yeah. know, and developing our egos, our identities, our personhood, our who we are in this meat suit, you know, because we need to have an ego before we want to dissolve our egos. You know? <laughs> So that's a good point. Yeah. And and so I guess just to throw in like a very arbitrary number or age, like for me, I would probably say like I would work with folks who are over 21, you know, not under 21. So just putting it out there. I don't want to sound like someone who's, you know, you know, we can only have alcohol when we're 21 kind of thing, but that kind of resonates with me personally, just my own choice of who I want to work with. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I also that personally resonates with me too. From my own experience, like I started experimenting with psychedelics when I was younger than that. I think I was 18 or 19. And I definitely found it challenging, especially with the lack of integration resources around. And like I didn't work with a guide initially. So it was, I think, quite can be quite destabilizing. And so luckily now maybe that'll get better as like more resources become available. But I think that's a really great words of advice. The a question that I wanted to kind of 
move towards and kind of shifting now away from, you know, practical things around being a guide and just some, some suggestions there. I just wanted to hear a bit more about, you know, your culture um, and how that kind of maps onto the psychedelic experience. As we started our conversation today, you mentioned some of the um, political unrest that's happening right now in Iran. And obviously, without being your background, that's very close to home for you and something that you're following closely. And so I'm just curious, the question I had for you was, how do psychedelics currently map onto Iranian culture and how do they relate to current things going on? I'm curious if you might be able to make a connection there. It's a good question. Um, I'm wondering again where to begin. There was a psychedelic brew called Homa or Soma. We're not sure when and where it originated, but some people argue that it goes as far back as Zoroastrianism, which is actually the oldest religion, which originated in Persia, ancient Persia, before there was an Iran. And that some argue might have come from cannabis or Syrian rue. It's kind of like our version of the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, and that these medicines have existed in our culture for a long time in our people. We Persians or Iranians, you know, have had a millennia old culture and therefore a millennia old intergenerational, you know, war, scarcity, trauma, and challenges that we've had to overcome as a people. So a lot of collective trauma that exists in our culture. And more recently, just speaking to the last 40, 50 years, you know, we've gone through a huge revolution that overthrew the Shah or the monarch or the king of Iran in favor of the current Islamic theoretic authoritarian regime that is willing to kill its own people in protests where hijab women have to wear their enforced their mandatory hijab you know for all kinds of oppression repression suppression and a system run by fear shame and guilt um a system that wants to impose and dictate rather than honor and respect individual human rights. And so not only did we have the revolution that was followed by an eight, nine-year-old Iran-Iraq war that was then for many people followed by having to leave their countries against their will, having to become refugees in another country, the experience of immigration that's alive for a lot of us Iranians, especially for us who aren't able to go back like myself due to political persecution, which is horrible, right? Like, how can you not go back to the place you were born? Just imagine that for a moment, you know, like how can Frodo not be able to return to the Shire? And... It's a horrible feeling, you know, but luckily, again, thanks to psychedelics, one way of experiencing home is from within, meaning that we associate that feeling to a given place, a physical place, a country, a nationality, a people, 
yet that feeling has lived within us all along. It's a, I'm not saying it's easy, but that place is within us all. And I got to truly live that and experience that in my body, in my truth, in myself on an ayahuasca journey, that that feeling of homeness at homeness truly lies within. And that gave me a lot of peace and comfort that I can access this any place, anytime, anywhere. So I can go into the Persian culture. There's a lot of like denial, like I'm good. What do you mean? Like you're, you're fucked up, not me. Like you've got the problems on me. Like I know, like there's a lot of like, I know everything kind of this kind of pride. I don't know where it's coming from where I'm okay. Like they're not even willing to look at it, but I need to accept them for where they are. Right. Going back to, you can't change anyone or help them when it's evident in their eyes, in their face, in their facial gestures, in their tone, that perceivedly trauma is alive in their systems, in their bodies, in their families. So it's kind of heartbreaking to see our own people who've been oppressed for so long. Um, but at the same time, hopeful that there are certain Iranians who are now opening up to psychedelics, perhaps not in the best ways, perhaps not in the safest ways. Um, and this is why I decided to start my own Farsi speaking podcast to connect to Persians, both at home, but also diaspora living abroad to become a bridge like my father was to connect and bridge, to connect and bridge different ideologies, different people um, coming from different backgrounds, cultures, contexts, and therefore supporting them in their healing journeys and educating them around psychedelics. That's so beautiful. I was going to ask you about your podcast. And so, yeah, do you mind sharing with people what the name of it is? And also, yeah, a little bit more about what you mean there by making that bridge. What does that look like for you in an ideal world? What are you trying to do? You just bring all of us together, you know, to not create these divisions and polarity and contrast that we seem to be living in. There seems to be a weird kind of competition going on between Iranians who are living in Iran versus those outside of Iran. Oh, you're lucky. You got to go outside. You're one of the lucky ones. You're one of the privileged ones. You are, you have no right to speak for us. You know, you're there living in Canada or the US, you know, in your big houses and your, you know, whatever. Um, but that's not necessarily true. A lot of Iranians who do have to, again, immigrate sometimes against their will and having to enter the Western slightly more individual minded, you know, uh, culture of paying rent and, you know, uh, having mortgages and credit cards and debts is super challenging, you know, coming from a different language, culture, background to these countries is not easy. That's a very difficult transition to make, especially if you're older in your 20s, 30s, 40s. And so let's not be quick to judge anyone let's all realize that we're all in this together as ramdas says we're all just walking each other home um and and my role here is to try to bridge as many people as possible for all of us to enter the same page the same frequency the same uh healing that we all deserve regardless of where we are where we're coming from um and the podcast is still evolving it's changing it's growing you know and i have no idea what it's going to look like um, I have no idea what Iran is going to look like in five or 10 years. You know, I feel very hopeless and powerless at times because 
as I mentioned, you know, this is a country that's willing to kill its own people. So peaceful protest can only get you so far when it's met with a gun or a riot police or, or, or just dispro disproportionate um, reaction because of this fearful, paranoid regime who doesn't even want to risk a group of more than 50 people gathering together, plotting their demise, right? So the way I see it is that there's going to be a huge change within Iran very soon. I don't know if it'll be another revolution, but um, it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time, especially because the women of Iran and the young people of Iran have had enough. And that the new generation are like, you older people messed up. Like you, you know, had, have no idea what you're doing. You know, within Iran, politics have become a joke. Reformists and moderates were not able to do anything to live up to their promises. The hardliners, the religious extreme rights, and the IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guards, gets to dictate and control um, what happens in the country. They're the ones ultimately who have control over the resources, over the oil and gas, you know. And by the way, we're a country that's very resource rich. We could have been a paradise right now. We could have been living um, perhaps to compare to a few of the very rich Arab nations. It's not a very good comparison, but another example might be Turkey that really in initially, not now, but initially chose a more secular route, which was to open their doors to become a bridge between the East and the West and had a huge industry around tourism and a welcoming tourist. But Iran has even more, you know, beautiful architecture, landscape, um, historical sites, or as beautiful. I don't want to compare with Turkey, you know, but yet we have, people are afraid, foreigners are afraid to go to Iran for fear of getting arrested. You know, this is where we are today. So I kind of went all over the place um, here, but That's in... Great. Yeah, the gist of it is that I feel quite hopeless and powerless, but yet that anger needs to speak. Yeah, And so there's a saying that a true warrior goes into battle in the face of certain defeat, meaning that even if I know that I might fail, I'm going to go anyways. That's kind of where I am. You know, it's like this wall of fire that you walk into anyways. Thanks for sharing, Maran. So you spoke a little bit there about where you see things going with the podcast and where you, things, where you see things going in general with um, Iran and and your home. I'm curious if you can turn that kind of forward-looking gaze to the psychedelic space as well, in general. Uh, maybe not in particular in Iran, but here in in Canada or in North America, perhaps. Like, where do you, uh, you know, as someone who's you know a professional psychedelic facilitator, uh, counselor, someone who's you know actively embedded in the mental health system here, where do you see the psychedelic space? going in the next few years? Uh, what do you foresee happening? The first answer, Michael, is I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think it's hopeful that psychedelics and psychedelic therapy is entering the collective consciousness, our vernacular. You know, I always kind of smile when I hear from someone like, how did you hear about psychedelics? Like some people say through how to change your mind. A lot of people, right? Through yeah. Michael Pollan's work or his recent um, documentary on Netflix. 
some people through what was that like Nicole Kidman show like seven perfect strangers or you know like oh I hear it works really well for um, PTSD right like they quote the maps work in clinical trials the research uh, depending on their context right a neuroscientist might say something a student might say something an older person might say something so it's so funny to hear how everyone has been bridged Bill Burr um, the comedian the stand-up you know I saw his show in Vancouver a month ago which was great and he shares about his mushroom experience. So some people, and then my cousin's partner said, I want to try mushrooms. Like his gateway was Bill Burr, you know? And we all have um, a way of entering this space in this field. I guess we can call that our own calling, right? Our bridge to this kind of um, space. And I'm kind of the skeptic in me, the questioner in me is a little bit worried because um, in the rush towards legalization or wanting this to become more and more available, there is also the potential risk or danger of having um, people try too soon, people offering it without having done enough of their own work you know, as I mentioned, not necessarily the training, but really truly being in respect and integrity and reverence towards these very powerful, potent medicines, you know, offering them to others. You know, what comes to mind is how now you can get DMT in a DM, in a vape pen. That's wild. And imagine at a festival, just having that offered to you for a moment, you know, without knowing what it is. We've, I think a lot of us have experienced that, right? Taking something without knowing what it is or having something offered to us and not feeling fully prepared having that little bit of, because I've had that before, slight wanting to fit in or belong or, you know, feeling accepted by the group and therefore rushing into these experiences. So there's a potential for some unsafe, not prepared enough, not safe enough, not good enough setting, not with the right people, um, episodes happening in the space. I also can go on a whole rant about um, some of my (sighs) worry about for-profit models that are operating in the space, but maybe we can get into that in our next episode. Um, Again, it goes back to how we can have a really nice website or promise a certain thing when the reality is that am I after ego, money, power, status, profit, for the sake of my stakeholders, shareholders, investors, or am I truly doing this for the community, for others, you know, towards the betterment of humanity and the collective? That's a really important um, question for all of us to ask ourselves. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I in this work? Why am I in this field? Why do I want to enter this field? What is the purpose? To pay rent? Which is, I get it. It's money is real. Rent is real. All of that I get. But hopefully that can be secondary, not necessarily primary. Not to, again, judge others or say what someone should or shouldn't do, but to really be curious and look at our motives, intentionality when it comes to this work, either as practitioners or participants. Yeah, I love the parallel there between participants needing the intention and facilitators need intention and just the psychedelic space in general and psychedelic medicines propagating us towards a more intentional 
culture. I think that's a really beautiful ecosystem to look forward to and to maybe have some faith in and hope to see evolve over the next few years. Thanks for speaking to that, both your concerns and your optimisms, Maran. I'm being mindful of time here. I'm curious if, you know, as we start to wrap up, if there's anything that you wanted to dive into more that we didn't really get to touch on that you wanted to talk about today while we have about 10 minutes left, um, let me know. Nothing comes to mind, Michael. As I mentioned, I kind of have one foot here, one foot in Iran at the moment, just given uh, all the noise and all the protests. And I'm actually going to the Vancouver Art Gallery very soon to join protests that are happening here in Vancouver. Um, And so nothing else comes to mind. I think we covered quite a bit. I just wanted to extend that I'm here in case anyone had any curiosities or questions that they can reach out to me anytime and uh, would love to support them in any which way I can. Thank you so much, Maran. I'll include maybe your email in the, in the follow-up or your, I guess you link to your website in the show notes so that people can reach out to you and, and find your contacts and also learn more about you. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next opportunity to have a conversation with you. Uh, it was really a joy to be able to just listen to your thoughts uh, as you share and and discuss yeah, some really important topics that we need to, I think, talk about more in the psychedelic space. So thank you so much for spending your day today uh, conversating with me. And also, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward for you for the opportunity to, you know, go and make your voice heard uh, at the art gallery. Uh, it's a beautiful day out. And yeah, I know that's going to be a powerful atmosphere. So I'm sending you all the best for that. And yeah, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today, Maran. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. And on that note, you know, all of us have such powerful voices and I really hope that we can all share it, our own individual, unique voice story, that we all have something beautiful to share, even if it's like, even if it sounds slightly cliche, we really are powerful, more powerful than we realize and we think, and that our voices do matter. Just speaking to that anger piece, every time I speak up, I feel better after, you know, even in this podcast, even sharing my dad's story, which is heavy even if it means, you know, sharing about the protest or speaking up for what I feel is true. You know, what do you mean? Are you against capitalism when I'm speaking about, you know, for-profit, you know, spaces, you know, like that's good. Let's notice any triggers, anything arising in us that let's challenge, let's question, let's be skeptical. Let's, you know, hold each other accountable. You know, these are very important, um, parameters barometers of of this space as it evolves moving forward and then finally michael i just wanted to share with you thank you for your podcast for the platform that you've created for the spaces the safe spaces that you've created with the flying sage you know that i have used i mean if i can't find a better word um, and benefited from in so many ways you know thanks to you um but thank you yeah for everything you've done and continue to do in the space i also see you as a bridge truly in the community that you really always want to bridge the gap bring um, different peoples i think we didn't get a chance to speak about um the above ground versus underground i think even that distinction hopefully can be dissolved over time we can get into that in a future episode but there shouldn't be any kind of polarity because that only reinforcing the light and dark the current polarity black and white that we live in we need to we live in shades of gray live in the middle i'm a libra i love balance you know 
um, let's come together, let's be together, let's speak together, let's grow together, let's heal together, like we did for many years, sitting around the fire, you know, as tribes, as collectives, as communes in community, um, not be all of ourselves in our own worlds through our own trauma lens, through our own doors of perception, trying to find the way. You know, the communities that you've created show that there are many out there who live just like me, who um, want the same things as me and have the same values, aspirations and integrity and truth as I do. So let's continue to bring people together in community, um, which is beautiful. And thanks for having me as part of your community. Of course. Thank you so much, Ron. Until next time. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a review or sharing it with your friends. If you would like to stay tuned to future updates with The Flying Sage, make sure to head on to our website and sign up for our email newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram and sign up for our free signal group, which can be found on our website. If you're interested in getting more involved with The Flying Sage, please check out our membership, which gives you access to our new community integration platform, as well as many awesome perks like free events and discount on merchandise and exclusive member-only events too. All the details for this can be found on our website. We're looking forward to having you tune in to our next episode and until then, wishing you blessings and love.